Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Life with Graft versus Host Disease, or GVHD, Post-Allogeneic Stem Cell or Bone Marrow Transplantation, New Treatment Approaches. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations. And it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today, we have on the call today over 421 participants. And you come from all over the United States, so from all different areas, from both urban, uh, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants on the call today from Canada, India, and United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and we are delighted with your response to the program today. Um, today's program is made possible by Pharmacyclics LLC and Janssen Biotech, Inc., and we want to really thank them for their support. Now, we have just the best speakers on today's program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Doris Ponce, and Dr. Ponce is Assistant Attending Adult Bone Marrow Transplant, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Ponce is going to address what is graft-versus-host disease, GVHD, understanding how GVHD develops, including finding GVHD early, common signs and symptoms of GVHD, and types of GVHD, including chronic and acute. It really is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ponce. Um, hello. Uh, good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. Um, thank you very much for this invitation. So I want to start talking about graft-versus-host disease and, in general, what is it, what is the classification. Um, so just to start, um, when we do a stem cell transplant, we do it with a purpose. The purpose of it is curing a patient from cancers that are lethal. So otherwise, this is a life-saving um, treatment that we offer to our patients, but it comes with the cost of sometimes complications. So one of the uh, complications that we can see in transplant is very unique for this type of treatment is graft-versus-host disease. And what is that? So is uh, when we do a stem cell transplant, we are transferring stem cells, but we're also uh, giving a new immune system to the patient. And that donor immune system, it calls sense that it's in a different body or in a different place, and they will trigger an attack. So it's like a stranger must destroy kind of attitude, the new cells against the recipient or uh, the patient. So when we um, um, evaluate more of this in depth about what's going on, um, what we think is that when the patient is exposed to chemo, to radiation, um, there, it creates an environment that is there is some inflammation, and it can actually trigger the immune system to be active just because the environment that the patient is going through, and that will activate certain type of cells that will uh, migrate to different organs in the patient body and uh, do this kind of attack against their organ. So a patient who has a graft-versus-host disease 
who manifest will be presented with uh, complications to their skin, to their liver, or to their gut. And I'm going to talk about it in a few minutes. Before I do that, I want to say that Graffers-Souhou's disease is common. So many of our patients will endure some type of Graffers-Souhou's disease. And we actually have um, a classification of Graffers-Souhou's disease. So we call it acute or chronic. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But in that classification, we also we can also say what's the severity of that Graffers-Souhou's disease. So in acute, we actually classify it from one to four. One is the mildest form, and four, and four is the most aggressive type of Graffers-Souhou's disease presentation. So about half of our patients, approximately, will have some type of Graffers-Souhou's disease during their transplant period. Now, out of that half of the patient, um, about three-quarters of the patient will have a milder presentation, which is... Um, grade one to two, and the other quarter of patients might have a more severe presentation. What are the risk factors? So we really don't know which patients is going to have reference to host disease. So when we're meeting a patient before we get started with transplant, we we just don't know if that patient will endure graphosal disease or not. But there are certain factors that will say, well, you might be an increased risk for having it, but it's not a guarantee. So one of the things that we currently know is that if the compatibility of the patient with their donor is not 100%, there is an increased chance of having reference to host disease. Another, um, another factor is who is your donor. So if your donor is a brother or a sister, identical twin, uh, the chance of having Graves-Souhou's disease will be much less compared with somebody else that is not related to the patient. Um, also, if um, the stem cells are being extracted through your through the bone marrow of the donor, or if it was collected through what we call peripheral blood, it seems that when the stem cells are coming out of the bone marrow directly there is a decreased risk of having reference to host disease. So that can also impact on the risk scale. And then um, other things that could impact your risk is um, the more intense the transplant, so the more chemotherapy radiation intensity, the higher it is, it can increase your risk of having this complication because it does create an environment that can be more uh, inflammatory during the initial part of transplant. And and then last but not least, another factor that we can take into account is that we, we do get medications to prevent graphosohose disease, but sometimes for multiple reasons, our patients are not able to take those medications. So, for example, they had a severe problem with their kidneys and we had to stop the medication or they forgot. Um, so there are could be reasons for for which a patient have to hold that treatment, and by doing that, also increase the risk of having the the donor immune system attacking the patient. So, in conclusion, from this long list of factors, I have to say that while we have patients that have, we kind of check all those factors. Not necessarily they will have Graffers-Souhou's disease, so it's not a guarantee. Again but it can tilt your uh, your chances of having or not having it. Um, as I previously mentioned, these 
um, donor cells will preferentially go to what we call target organs, to different organs that can be affected. So um, the organs are either the skin, the gut, and or the liver. The one that is the most common one is affection of the skin. Then the second one is the gut or the GI tract, and the last one uh, in terms of frequency is the liver. So um, what are those manifestations of the skin GVH? So our patients typically will have a rash. Um, that rash can present in a small um, a places in your body, like surface, or it could be more extensive. Um, we will classify the severity of the rash based on the extension of the rash. So if the rash is affecting, let's say, just your face, um, the amount of the surface area that is affecting is less compared if it's uh, is affecting all your back and your chest, for example. So um, the extension of the rash can also uh, make you um, a higher intense typographic host disease, and it might some patients might require different type of treatment depending on how extensive that rash is. Uh, we will typically give creams to treat the rash, but sometimes we need to be and I um, and this will be we will discuss this more later. But sometimes we need to be more aggressive in the treatment when the skin is affected. Nonetheless, the majority of the patient with is having the skin affected uh, usually respond well to treatment. And many times our doctor will require uh, having a biopsy of the skin in order to confirm that the rash is caused by uh, graft-versus-host disease. Um, sometimes when we see, these, uh, see our patients with rashes, there are other uh, reasons for rashes that we need to consider. So um, allergy to medications, um, um, an infection going on your skin, like some viruses can present with rash. So we have to be careful in making sure that that's the right diagnosis because treatment could be different. Uh, then um, the second organ I mentioned was the gut. So patients can have either the upper part of their gut affected or the lower part of the gut or all of the above. If it is the upper part, our patients will have anorexia, so no appetite, could feel nauseous, throwing up. And then if the lower part is affected, um, abdominal pain, diarrhea is the most common symptom in the lower gut, um, and sometimes even bleeding and, and just um, significant pain. Um, our patients could have all of the symptoms like feeling nauseous, throwing up, diarrhea, belly pain. Um, this is one of the um, organs that, when it's affected, can be harder to treat, and and we um, we want to identify these early symptoms as early as we can because uh, we need to start treatment right away. And also, as I mentioned, with the skin, uh, there are other reasons for why the patient could have diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and we need to investigate for those things. So it's common for your doctor to ask to get a sample, like an endoscopy, to assess your, your gut inside and find out if 
if what your symptoms that you're having are due to gravitational disease or it's medications, also infection, and even the treatment that you get during your transplanted conditioning can cause some of these symptoms. So um, we usually want to have some, some tissue samples to investigate more. And then um, the other organ uh, that we spoke about in acute graphic disease is the liver. Um, it's hard to assess the liver sometimes because many things can cause abnormalities in your liver. The manifestation usually patients feel fine, there's no pain, but uh, what we see is that um, the liver function test, so testing in the blood can be abnormal. Um, so is the, the organ that is least affected and other things, other reasons, other causes can be um, interfering with your liver. So we usually need to exclude other reasons like medications, um, infection, and um, and sometimes um, patients might have some issues with their liver before the transplant that is just getting worse during the environment of having a transplant. Uh, nonetheless, these are the typical organs that are affected in acute graft-versus-host disease. But now I want to go with the classification in terms of acute and chronic. So what we just what I just spoke is about acute graft-versus-host disease, and, and what it means is that um, a patient have the manifestation we just spoke, like a skin rash, the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and the abnormalities in your liver test and typically present early in transplant between the first 100 years, uh, sorry, 100 days. However, uh, acute graft-versus-host disease symptoms can present after day 100, but the manifestations will still be the same. Chronic graft-versus-host disease is, um, 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 which I will explain, is another type of donor cell stem cell reaction manifestation can affect more organs from what I spoke about, the acute graft-versus-host disease, and it can typically present after day 100. However, we know that there are cases of patients that it can present um, before day 100, and, um, and, and it could be um, beyond the one year of presentation, like patients after one year still have graft-versus-host disease, uh, can present for the first time the graft-versus-host disease. What is interesting to know that the majority of the patients that were to have or develop chronic graft-versus-host disease, 90% will do it between the first year of transplant. And so during the first year, we're very, very vigilant about identification of any symptoms of graft-versus-host disease. So when we talk about chronic graft-versus-host disease, there are different classifications, and it all has to do, like if your doctor talk about different classical, chronic, progressive, interrupted, all of those has to do with their time of presentation. And if um, if you have graft-versus-host disease before that was acute, went away, and now you have chronic, or you have both together. So there are different classifications based on your the clinical presentation and when the manifestations are presented and according to your, your time of transplant. Um, so typically, a patient will have chronic graft-versus-host disease at the time that your doctor is start going down on your immune suppression taper. 
So symptoms can present, as we mentioned early transplant, but the majority was with between the first year transplant, and about 10% of the patient might present chronic graft-resistant disease after the first year. Now, once, pre- once the patient develops graft-resistant disease, it could, you, you, you could still have symptoms for a long period of time. And um, your doctors, what they will try to do is to build tolerance between the new immune system and the patient in order to ameliorate and improve chronic graft-resistant disease with time. Now, what are those symptoms of chronic graft-resistant disease? So um, chronic graft-resistant disease can affect different part of your body, uh, typically the skin, nails, eyes, mouth, your gut, muscles, lungs, and even um, uh, GU, so genital urinary um, symptoms can be present due to graft-resistant disease. So what are those symptoms? So patients with their skin is affected, their skin can be tight. Um, it's uh, difficulty even like grabbing your your skin, like pinching your skin, and some patients sometimes describe like they feel they're having cellulitis, so we're like that dimpling in the skin. Um, sometimes there can be some changes in your hair, uh, like losing hair or like just being thinner. Um, your nails can look a little bit unusual, like um, some dimpling inside your nails. And eyes, uh, patients can can say that they just feel dry, gritty, uh, like sand sensation in the eye, and sometimes the opposite, like excessive tearing all the time. And in terms of the mouth, uh, patients can say, well, they don't tolerate um, different temperatures in their mouth, having difficulty brushing their teeth because of the toothbrush and toothpaste. Spicy foods, soda, those are things that can be um, painful to the mouth. And as things progress, then uh, ulcers in the mouth, difficulty when swallowing or, or speaking can develop. When chronic graphic affects the gut, uh, patients could have um, some weight loss and difficulty swallowing and um, sometimes mm, diarrhea and malabsorption. So if you eat some food, then you will have diarrhea after eating the food. Um, in terms of musculoskeletal, sometimes your joint can be contracted or feeling stiff and muscle cramping and pain can develop. Um, in the lungs, shortness of breath, cough, wheezing can present. And in women, it's important um, to find out about their sexual health having uh, pain during um, intercourse can be present, or even um, on routine basis, it, there there can be some um, pain sensation to the um, uh, um, GU area. Now, again, we spoke about many organs, but the ones that are more frequently affected in chronic graft-resistant disease are the skin, the mouth, and the eyes. And when your doctor sees you in in clinic, uh, we start looking for all the features that we suppose. So we check on your skin, we check on your mouth, your eyes, we ask for symptoms. And it's really, it's important for the doctor and and the patient just to have all that information, things that you feel are new, that you notice for the first time, or 
maybe you think it's cellulitis. Maybe you think it has something to do with your um, changing your your toothpaste. But it's important you just to mention to your doctor. So those are clues that can help to identify early signs or symptoms of graft-to-host disease that will make the treatment. Uh, easier for us and for you because the earlier we start, the better. And um, so it's important when we get all this information. So when we examine a patient, we say we have to look, we have to feel, and we have to move. So we look at our patient, we get a feeling of like we do physical exam, we touch your skin, we check on your mouth, and we look for those symptoms of graphics of disease. And then we check your joints for movement and, and to assess if there's any changes. So manifestation can start as very mild, just very subtle, and then progressively gets worse. So we really want to pick it up when it's early. Um, all right, this is my part. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ponte. That was really wonderful, and you set the stage for today's program and really very comprehensive. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Richard Mazeros, and Dr. Mazeros is going to is medical director, adult blood and marrow stem cell transplant and cellular therapy program, professor of medicine, Knight Cancer Institute, Oregon Health and Science University. Um, and uh, Dr. Mazeros is going to uh, discuss current standard of care for managing GVHD, new and promising treatment approaches, clinical trials, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about GVHD. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mazeros. Yeah. So, um, hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for taking the time of your day to, uh, you know, t listen to us and we live this every day, and you know we we actually look forward to your questions because that'll give us insights of how in our day to day business that we don't maybe deliver the information should we should deliver. So thank you for being on. Um, first, before I I was asked to talk about current standards of care, but it's important to understand I think before we talk about how we treat it is to understand where what are we trying to accomplish. It's just that basic effect, and you've probably heard it somewhere along the line, that as much as we hear the graft versus host can be a problem or cause issues, and maybe, and they're all maybes and could be's and possibles, but it's also that we want, we may want a little, because graft versus host can be good for you, because graft versus host, as you heard for Dr. Ponce, it is the host immune system. I mean, it is now gone, and the donor immune system is taking over, and we want that donor immune system to do the job. And I think in the world of what, we, what job is, what job do we want the, the, the immune system to do? Well, a lot of it depends on, you know, three factors. And when we talk to, when we meet our patient for the first time, which is actually going to make us understand what their GVHD risk is, we want, there's going to be three things that we look at. First is, what disease do you have? Do you have a disease that is minimally, you know, um, you know it need, it's minimally aggressive. We, have, we know we're going to have a lot of time to develop our treatments, or we just need to replace something and not necessarily attack something. Like if you have a thalassemia where I just want to get a new gene, you know, gene and a new protein in, as opposed to you have leukemia that's aggressive. So the disease makes a lot of difference in how we decide how we're going to prevent and how we're going to treat. 
you know, who you are. I mean, what's really shocking, again, I've been around this for a while. When I started, age 30 was considered too old for transplant because it was too toxic of, a, of an approach. Well, now we have a variety of approaches that can decrease those risks. And the fastest growing group in the country getting transplant is the over 70-year-old group. So we are able to manage a patient population. But if we're going to use treat a 70-year-old, we're going to treat them differently than a 10-year-old. We're going to use a different approach for how we treat the disease, which means we're also going to take a different approach of how we try to protect from the graft-versus-host that may develop afterward. And finally, as you just heard briefly, it depends on what type of transplant you have. You know, are, is your source of cells from a brother or a sister that's fully matched? Or is it a cord, coming from a cord blood? Or is it coming from someone else across the world? Those will all influence the likelihood of getting graft-versus-host and what type of graft-versus-host. And then that's going to influence us, Dr. Ponce and myself and our colleagues across the world, in choosing the approach to manage you individually. This is personalized medicine to the highest degree. Now, in that case, what do we do when we say we want to manage graft-versus-host? Well, the first thing we want to do is say, Firstly, and recognize that in almost every individual we transplant, if we don't do something, some graft versus host is going to occur. There will be the donor immune cells will react to some aspect of the host. Um, there, and there's only a very rare situation where we don't give some type of treatment to protect from it developing. We call that prophylaxis. And we have different approaches. And again, those approaches of, of medicines that we use are often related to, again, that disease. What is the disease risk? You know, do I think that you need maximal um, immune suppression? And then I can be, I can do things like mix three drugs together um, right up front for suppressing of your GVHD, or I can do graft engineering. Dr. Ponce is at one of the, the world's centers at who's developed these manipulation or graft engineering in which ways you can protect patients from getting graft-versus-host. So you may have all had heard about methotrexate or tacrolimus or, cal or cyclosporin. These are agents that have been developed over 40, 50 years now in regimens that have been established at, that has predictability. And what we really want is predictability in, in standardization. And a lot of research is saying, can I improve on what standard? Because what we know is we deal with a disease and we deal with the risk of graft-versus-host, but we now know that we have approaches that will protect you from the development of graft-versus-host, and it has a very predictable control, disease, GVHD control. And so if you have a matched brother or sister, and I do a standard transplant, and I do standard potentially two-drug prophylaxis with a drug called methotrexate or tacrolimus, I expect that what you just heard about was on the acute graft-versus-host, it may occur in about only one out of four people. Chronic graft-versus-host may be a different story, but again, that's a different, you know, role. So we are going to look at graft-versus-host in, in a matter of stages. We're going to look at it like that we assume it's going to happen, but we're going to work to prevent it from emerging clinically. We don't mind subclinical graft-versus-host, but we will look to block its, ma its, its major clinical eruption. 
And then what we will do there is what happens if, okay, we gave you protection, we gave you medications to prevent the graft-versus-host from being clinically significant, but it became clinically significant. Well, Dr. Ponce actually already told you the answer. We're going to say is how clinically significant. If it's a little bit of skin, maybe we can use a little bit of topical therapy on the skin to treat it. Actually, you could have a little bit of gastro, the gastrointestinal. You can have a little bit of nausea, a little bit of loose stools, and we can we actually have a topical therapy. We can give you a steroid, a corticosteroid. Prednisone is often our your major drug for treating in um, graft versus host, but we have a steroid that we can give by the GI tract that doesn't that's almost minimally absorbed, and so we could just do topical GI tract treatment. But that's if it's early stage, but if it looks like it's more advanced, the basis of all treatment of new diagnosis graft-versus-host is still going to be corticosteroids or prednisone or medrol. Um, and why is that? Well, we now we do know from the laboratory that prednisone actually kills lymphocytes. If patients have lymphoma or they have lymphoblastic leukemia, if any of patients are on the line, the basis of our treatment is prednisone. You know, the very simplest treatment of, of, a, of a lymphocyte-based disease is to give prednisone. If you get poison ivy, that's an allergic reaction that often involves your own immune system. What do you do? You, give, you actually give patients five days of prednisone. It kills lymphocytes. And so that is the basis of our new diagnosis treatment. And across the country, you know, across the world, that remains the principal approach to management. What does happen is there are patients that after we have them on the prednisone dose for a week or 10 days, and, you know, they just prove that it wasn't, you're not getting adequate control. It appears to be prednisone resistant or we call steroid resistant. Well, then that's where we need something else. And that's where a lot of the activity is going on, and a lot of activity is going on for 15 years, is because what is a, a, something we can do to treat that resistant graft-versus-host but not put someone at an increased risk of infection or increased risk of other you know, tissue damage and to find that right drug? And at the moment, to be honest, in despite a lot of work, we haven't found that right drug that everybody is convinced is the number one approach to resistant graft-versus-host. And I can tell you, though, the work and the research goes on. And in that point, there is a lot of research. Rest assured that, you know, nobody is satisfied with the status quo. We want to do better. And what do we want to do better? We want to cure more people. And how do we cure people? Well, one, we have to treat the disease, and we get, need to get smarter about the disease. But two, the other way that we cure more people is actually is we decrease the risk of complications. And so if we can manage, effectively manage to limit the clinical impact of graft-versus-host disease, the fact that you don't have to get you know, in the hospital because you're having diarrhea that's just having trouble keeping up with, then we'll have actually improved the outcome of individuals. And I think there are many new promising treatments for graft-versus-host. Um, there's focus in, there's, and there's studies in Europe, there's studies in Asia, there's certainly studies in the United States that are, you know, been piloted a lot by either individual institutions 
or now nationally, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and the National Cancer Institute has created what we call the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network at the BMT-CTN. And that is focused on improving the outcome of patients. And GVHD is clearly the R disease. It is the disease of the BMT-CTN. And there have been, for the last 15 years, ongoing trials to improve the outcome of patients. And I think that we're seeing some very exciting change. And certainly in the last 10 years, um, there's the work from Johns Hopkins Medical Center where they've actually looked at our standard approach to how we protect people from getting graft-versus-host disease, and they may have made a major breakthrough in a new development of how we prevent GVHD and also then how we treat it. And again, that is now the answer of will they have, to, have they changed the standard of care? We expect we'll know in, in about two to three years because those studies are actively ongoing across the country. I would say there are other um, new, th new approaches that are of interest. You know, a lot of our treatment, had, when we see graft-versus-host, actually, biologically, it's two things are focused. One, we focus on the lymphocytes that came from the donor, and we've, because if they're not controllable by the prednisone, can we use another tool that targets that specific lymphocyte? And we've had a lot of lymphocyte-specific therapies. The other approach to graft-versus-host disease is to say, okay, the lymphocytes are there, but we want them to be there because, you know, a little graft-versus-host is good, to de good for you. Can we concentrate on decreasing the inflammation caused by the graft-versus-host? And so we see these therapies that are basically unidirectional. They're focused at either the lymphocyte control or, at the, or limiting the inflammation. Well, now I can say there's a number of approaches have recently been done in the last five years where they're looking at molecules that actually affect both simultaneous. So rather than be a single target, it's a multi-target simultaneous. And I think we learn in our community, you know, from the, the AIDS experience, when patients had the AIDS virus, you could develop and control the virus with a single drug, but then you got resistance. And a single drug treatment of GVHD may work, but then we get resistance. What the AIDS world told us is maybe if we have three drugs or four drugs working simultaneous at four different biologic pathways, we control the virus, and that has been, a, that has been an absolute winner in the world of HIV. And I think we're seeing that now in the world of, of graft-versus-host where people are looking at multi-drug approach to management. I think a very interesting, exciting breakthrough happened in, after 10 years of research in pediatric in the childhood graft-versus-host, where they're actually using another cell product, basically a cell that's full of multiple um, natural chemicals to suppress seven or eight different pathways. They can infuse those cells, and just recently the data shows that when they randomized against the best possible therapy, treatment with a cell population was actually shown to be superior, and the FDA has now recognized that as a benefit. So clinical trials are important. You know, research definitely has increased our treatment options. Research have, has allowed us to increase the number of patients that we treat because at the end of the day, nobody wants to waste their time on a treatment that doesn't work. You know, we ask a lot of patients to go through this, and the chances are that we want that person to have the absolute best possible opportunity. If we're random in what we do, 
we may not be treating that you as a patient. We're not giving you your best chance. So we need to be very reproducible. We need standard pathways, and we have them. But what we also want to do is when we have standard, we know what we have to improve on, and that's the goal of research. Research is focused at increasing options, either different ways to treat that we wouldn't have treated before, or possibly, you know, change, like I said, changing the populations for whom we treat. So now it's routine for us to treat patients high into their 70s with donor transplants, something that most people didn't dream of 15 years ago. I think the, you know, I'm excited by all this, and I think that we're now seeing in the world of graft versus host, as we're sitting back saying again, it's like, you know, maybe it's something we suppress. We're now learning, like what happens, we still have to deal with the underlying disease, and there are patients whose leukemia, despite all that we've done, the leukemia comes back. Well, we still know and we still have learned that immunologic control is the key to the actual treatment of leukemia, but we now have options for managing patients with who have leukemia relapse or lymphoma relapse after transplant by going back to the donor and getting more of the, basically the graft-versus-host forming cells, which will give a malignancy control, we can give them to the patient. And hopefully that can regain second control of, of the disease. Well, of course, you sit back and say, well, maybe that's going to make the GVHD worse. Well, we're now seeing very interesting and very exciting work coming out where we can take the donor cells that we want to use to create the graft-versus-host we're now putting suicide genes in them. So if we see we, the person, the recipient, is getting a, too bad of a complication, we can shut it right down. And in Europe, um, there's a, this approach has actually been approved by the, the European Medical Association, and a company called MolMed has the first approved gene therapy for management of graft-versus-host. And it's, that's also very exciting in that this is in the field. So from my perspective, and I've been – in the field for over 35 years. It's been exciting. It's improving. We are getting better, um, but we're not there yet. We have a long way to go, and what we want to do is continue to make it better, and that's what we need the trials for. You know, we have clearly, you heard Dr. Ponce separate acute clinical graft-versus-host from chronic clinical graft-versus-host. I think that's also critical, and because then once as we can clearly identify the populations, we can better study it and better improve on our standards. And I think then you sit back and say, okay, well, you're at home now and you have a symptom. What does it mean? I may have graft-versus-host. How do I get treated? You know, I manage people with 700 miles between where I am in San Francisco. So there's 700 miles between transplant centers. We, both of us, whether we're in San Francisco or here, we're making a lot of we're guiding a lot of physicians in the community on how to manage their patients and doing our best to keep them home. And we're aware of a lot of those key questions. And those questions that people want to know are, you know, and, and when do you, and we also know, we know what people want to know. We also know what they need to make sure their doctors know, which is you are at a higher risk for infection. Don't ignore fevers. You let your doctor know and let them be aware. We know that there's, you know, a change of clinical condition. You a lot of people may not be as strong as they were before. Our medications can make you weaker, but they can but they can get better over time. But it is a work over time. And 
it just takes, again, for some people, it can take a year. Some people can take two to three years before they start to get back to their normal condition. And obviously, though, there are patients where they trade a disease for a disease. You cure them of their cancer, but they now have this new immune-based disease that persists. And I tell a lot of my patients, you know, when someone has Crohn's disease as a 17-year-old or 18-year-old, you ask them at age 30 or 40, what's their medical history? They say, oh, I have Crohn's. Because that chronic, that risk of that, the Crohn's acting up again can occur five years later. And the same can happen with graft-versus-host. Graft-versus-host is very similar to having Crohn's disease. It's there. The cells are there. Most people become tolerant, but some people it becomes a chronic activity. We also are aware, though, that this chronic medication and being need for chronic under chronic care, you know, it's hard. It's a it's a hard burden to carry. It puts stress on families. It puts stress between individuals and those that they really want to talk to. What do you say to people? They don't really know what they you're going through. You know, when someone says, "Oh, I understand what you're going through. I had my I had an ankle surgery, and boy, was that tough." You could say, great, they had an ankle surgery. Well, I have this that goes on. Well, what you have to do is it's, support groups are important and finding ways that you can talk to people who understand what you're going through, that's invaluable. And I think finally, which is something I, I got to say I am not expert in, I have a, one of our pharmacists makes this, um, is really aware of this, is what are the things that you read? You go to the supermarket and you see there's, immune stimulants and there's things that are going to make you feel better the complementary medicine massage therapy acupuncture there are these therapies that help and i'm not going to say they don't help um i'm just saying they're not as well studied but they can help but i think what you want to do is if you do have this and you have graft versus host disease and it seems like your medical community your your doctors and your nurse practitioners and pas are sort of stuck and you're in you seem static and you want to do these treatments, I'm not saying don't do them, but just let, don't do them without somebody knowing. Because sometimes we get into trouble, but sometimes we make, it can make all the difference. And we learn from you. I have learned from patients of mine that massage therapy can break up those, that thickened skin. And if you take it in combination with a medication, it may actually keep the inflammation down and it can actually improve the, the function of the function. So we learn from all of you. We want to keep learning. And I just, I don't know if this was helpfully, helpful to you, um, but this is a, how I look at the scope of what GVHD is, how we treat it, and it's we recognizing it's a continuum. And I think one of the comments that Dr. Ponce said, I just want to bring up is GVHD does occur late. I have the latest time I ever saw somebody come into me with dry eyes and dry mouth and just a little food sort of sticking, which is the earliest sign, and this was a very easy to treat, but she was nine years from transplant and had never had any graft versus host. Well, what does that tell me? That tells me she's got immunologic protection. She's alive. Her cancer hasn't come back, but we, she has a donor immune system that can be triggered. So I'm going to stop there and just hope that provides some quick background to uh, where we go for next. Oh, that was really outstanding. Um, thank you so much. That was wonderful. And, and just a lot of wonderful information for everyone to have. Uh, also the key questions to ask your healthcare team. 
Um, so thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and uh, before we take questions, I do want you all to start thinking about questions because we're going to take your questions in just a minute. I just want to say a few words about the support services that you can access from Cancer Care. And I'm, I'm talking about cancer care support services. Some of those services you also may be able to access from your own medical centers as well. But um, so um, when living with uh, graft-resistant disease, with cancer, with any type of um, blood cancer, with any type of cancer at all, it's of course important um, to have the best medical care and to have a wonderful team. But also people um, often have practical and financial and emotional and social concerns. And um, it's really important to have a place to go to to talk about those things. Um, you can also mention them to your healthcare team. They may refer you then to people on your team already. But some of you may be in centers that don't have all those people in place. So Cancer Care is a national organization. We have an 800 number and a website that you can all access. Um, and um, the services that we provide are actually national in scope. We offer um, counseling on the telephone, and counseling is a fancy word for just saying someone that you can talk to about your concerns who's professionally trained, so they're all professionally trained oncology social workers. Um, they also provide, uh, we also provide support groups, and Dr. Mazur has mentioned support groups. They can be very helpful to some people. Some people really like a support group. We have them both on the telephone and online. So for people internationally, I know many of you and many of you in the United States prefer an online support group, and we have really 120 online support groups for both people living with um, with GBHD or living with uh, cancers as well as living as well as the caregivers or others who may be affected by um, the person's uh, treatment. Um, and we also um, offer um, a great deal of uh, just practical help to people as well. We have um, both financial assistance available and we have a copay assistance program as well, which can help with just many of the different costs associated with cancer. Um, and um, and then, of course, we have these workshops that you can access, and um, we also have a website and a lot of publications as well. So to call Cancer Care, to speak to one of our oncology social workers on our helpline, you can call 1-800-813-4673. And for those of you for whom a number like that will not work or it's not your convenience to use that, you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org, and you can post a question. You can also register online for the online support groups or for any of our other services as well, and for these programs, of course. So now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. If we do not get to your question, then at the very end of the program, I will explain to you how to get your questions answered um, if you didn't get to your question. But let's see how many we can take right now. So Ayala, um, if you could explain to everybody what to do, oh, that would be great. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. So we have one of our, a question from one of our online participants, um, and I'm going to give this question um, uh, to, um, to Dr. Mazeris. Um This question is, um, how long is GBHD medication necessary after the transplant? So that's a, that's a great question. And as I was telling you, before, or I was trying to say that we follow standard pathways. So in the world, if, if in a 
Most of our research studies and most of our standard pathways say that what we want to do is have time to, to, get, to bridge the immune system and treat the immune system to tolerance, and, but, but also to free up the immune system to keep and protect against disease coming back. Most standard approaches try to taper immune suppression by six months. And so my goal when I see a patient and I take a patient to transplant is I'm going to have them on medication for six months. However, there is a study there's a, that was done. If you, during that six months, when I'm bringing down the immune suppression, if you get a new presentation or new flare of graft-versus-host, it turns out, yes, you have to go back on medication, but if we follow those patients... It now, instead of a six-month window, we're now looking that it'll be two to, it's often two to three years before they come off. So it's a longer train time, but the goal is to get ultimate tolerance where you're off all medication. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, next question is for Dr. Ponce. Um, what is the connection between having skin GVHD and skin cancer? Is there a connection? Um, well, great question, too. Um, not really in terms of um, graft disease being uh, increasing your risk of skin cancer. However, undergoing transplant, particularly if the patient receives radiation, it does increase the risk of skin cancer. So we actually do recommend as part of our survivor initiative for patients to have a skin cancer screening regardless with history or without history of graft host disease because there is an increased risk of skin cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for uh, Dr. Maceres. Um, let's find it. Some of our online participants. Um, here it is. Um, I am donating my stem cells to my brother. How do I prepare? Is there anything I can do to make my stem cells better for him? Yeah. So, that's a great question. It comes up. It turns out if you are if you're going to be screened by a doctor and they will do the medical test to see if you are healthy to go forward. What you can do from from there though, what I basically tell people is you know, avoid what we know is clear-cut stem cell toxins. And what are they? Well, it's believe it or not, the main one is alcohol. I ask people just to really cut down if they are a heavy drinker because alcohol will suppress the marrow. Um, and if that's that's the kind of thing that some people that often don't ask, but they otherwise your medical the person screening you will look at your medications you're on, your health history. But the only thing that I would say you can do is um, stay you know eat a good diet, don't starve, but also try to avoid heavy alcohol. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Excellent. Um, so another question. This one is for Dr. Ponce. Um, why is my sister who has children considered a higher risk donor even though she is a match? Okay. I actually avoid talking about that because um, um, about a risk factor, it is a risk factor for increased graft-versus-host disease chances. And it has to do because um, when we have our baby, um, we are exposed to the DNA of our father's baby. And the more exposure we have, which is uh, which means the more times 
uh, a patient or a donor is pregnant, then more exposure to that paternal DNA happens and thus prime the immune system to be, um, let's say, like more alert because it's being exposed to other, to the paternal DNA. So when uh, that person becomes a donor, it does have that immune system already prime and it could be more, um, let's say, attentive in triggering that immune system reaction against the donor, against the patient, sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Um, these are wonderful. These are very interesting questions. And yeah. Great, uh, great group here. This is um, incredible. Um, and um, just check one more thing here. Um, and we have one question on the telephone right now. So, Ayala. Our question comes from Ibelka C. Your line is now open. Hi. Yes, I'm calling because um, my daughter passed away recently in, in January due to GVHD. Oh. So, sorry to hear that. first she had a GVHD in the gut. And a year later, she had GVHD in the liver. So my question is, would she always have had GVHD? Let's say she had made it through the GVHD in the gut and she was doing better. So would there, was there going to be a chance that something would have happened, like the liver was going to happen, something was going to happen? Because oh, we were so happy that she was doing so much better, and then all of a sudden she got the liver. So is that something that's always in, in her body? So, so I'll try and tackle that. That was when I was describing the the patient who nine years later had their first presentation or someone who has Crohn's disease that 20 years later you can have a flare. You will always have the donor. If we're successful, you will always have the donor immune system in your body. But what we seek to do is get tolerance where the immune system stops recognizing and attacking the body. But what and we achieve that in a lot of people, and they come off medicines in a lot of people. But what can happen is a year later or two years later, they can get, let's say, um, food poisoning because they had some, you know, raw fish and raw sushi, and they got sick to the stomach. And then that created a inflammation in the GI tract. Well, that inflammation can re-trigger the immune system to say, hey, wait a minute, this looks a little different. And you can actually reactivate graft-versus-host disease from a previously clinically unrecognized state. Now, that again, that's not a reason not to do transplant. That's a reason for us to continue to get better at how we manage it. But I do think that, yes, there's a risk that GVHD can reactivate in individuals over time. And so we are very um, saddened of your loss, and actually I'd like to talk with you after the call because, uh, you know, I think that you, it sounds like you did everything you, you could, you did the right, made the right decisions here, but that sometimes, um, uh, you know, um, in spite of everything that we do, um, that, um, that, um, that these, that this can happen. Or is that true, Dr. Nazareth? Is that actually the case that indeed you do the best? Yeah. So, um so we thank you for raising this, and um, it's an important question. I know that you're wondering, could we have done something different? Is that always the question? Um, I think both our speakers, Dr. Ponce and Dr. Mazur, deal with this all the time, or probably questions coming up like that. Um, and um, so we have um, another question from one of our online participants. Um, 
And I'm going to give this question to Dr. Ponce. I was diagnosed with GDHD, and I'm worried about the medication causing kidney and liver damage. Are there other treatment options? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I'm worried about I was diagnosed with GDHD, and I'm worried about the medication causing kidney and liver damage. Are there other treatment options? Okay. Um, just wondering what medication would that be. So the um, the the treatment for prevention of Graves-Diaz disease is a medication that we call calcium inhibitor, and it's um, it's a medication that can include tacrolimus cyclosporin, and that medication can um, sometimes hurt a little bit of the kidneys. However, the typical uh, first line of treatment, so how we treat upfront Graves-Diaz disease, is adding immune suppression, and as I was mentioned, we uh, we do give steroids as the first-line treatment. Um, steroids in particular don't, um, will be hurtful to your kidneys or to the liver, but it can impact your ability to fight against infection because we are toning down that immune system reaction. Those lymphocytes are the one triggering that reaction. We want to knock them down to decrease that donor immune system reactivity. And by doing that, we can increase the risk of infection. Saying that uh, when your doctor finds someone with Graves-Diaz disease, um, the sooner the better. And sometimes we, we give, we use this type of medication, but then um, we, just keep, we just keep it as long as we need to, but we try to go down on the treatment dose as soon as we can to minimize the side effect. So I would say the consequence of not treating Graves-Diaz disease are much worse than if you treat it. And if you treat it ahead of time, the exposure to the additional immune suppression tends to be less. Thank you. Excellent. And this will probably be our last question, Dr. Mazeres. Um, I read that patients with GVHD generally have a lower risk of having a relapse of their cancer. Why do they have a lower risk of relapsed cancer? Yeah, and so this is a great, again, this is the, the, the what I was trying to say during my talk, this is the driving force of why we do transplants from donors is not necessarily just to give the high-dose chemotherapy or radiation, but the main reason is to get a new immune system in. Your cancer, you have cancer because something happened, a mutation happened that led to your disease escaping your own immune system. One of the biggest exciting world in cancer care in the last five years has been the development of antibodies that will interfere with a tumor's ability to shut off the immune system. And just because it's very clear, the immune system regulates disease. And in this case, we give healthy cells into, into you know, healthy cells from a healthy donor into a person who has cancer. Well, what happens is we have two things. One, we have an immune system in the donor, in the, I'm sorry, an immune system in the recipient that is basically lost the ability to see the cancer. When I take cells from somebody else and put them into a recipient, let's say I have leukemia and I get cells from Dr. Ponce, well, her cells are now in me. They're coming, they're coming from a, a young, healthy adult who has no cancer, and they're coming into an older adult with cancer. So you do have automatically an immune attack because they look different, but adult cells look like adult cells. But cancer cells look very primitive. 
And the cancer cells just stand out like with a red flag saying, you know, I am really different than an adult cell. And so her healthy immune system coming in me, yeah, they will see my adult, my own adult cells as foreign, but they'll see those cancer cells that are so different than anything else that she has as really different. And they say, that's what I need to attack. So we do it. That's what graft versus leukemia, that's what graft versus malignancy, that's the basis of donor transplantation. Well, excellent. Well, thank you. I want to thank our speakers. Um, they've been terrific. I have to say, just wonderful. I'm the best. And I, I think they can't hear, hear, see you all applauding, but they really are terrific. I also, we all applaud all of our participants on the call today, um, those of you who asked questions, both on the phone and online. Um, you and really enhance the call today. It, it gives your voice and your important questions that you have. Um, and also, um, I have said that I know there are many more people in queue that with questions, so I do want to first of all address how do you get your questions answered. So, of course, the best place to get your questions answered is your healthcare team. They know you the best. But I do know and we recognize, all of us, that you also like to get information from credible resources um, about your questions before you ask your healthcare team sometimes. You don't have to do that, but I know some people feel that they would like to do that. Perhaps it helps you to feel more confident in asking your questions. We actually hope today's program helps you to feel more confident in asking questions and also that you have absolute permission to ask questions of your healthcare team. That's so important. Um, because if you tell them your questions or your concerns or what's happening, if you have an appointment that's scheduled a month away and something's happening today, you don't have to wait that month to contact your healthcare team. You can contact them right away. Um, nevertheless, um, there are a number of uh, blood cancer organizations on today's program that are a wonderful resource for all of you. Um, in addition to that, um, the National Cancer Institute um, it has a wonderful, is a wonderfully credible resource um, at 1-800-422-6237. That is their, their, uh, their phone line that you can contact. And for those of you who prefer their website, it's www.cancer.gov. That's a wonderful resource because they do have a live chat feature, which means that that's good for people in the U.S. and internationally. You can go to their live chat feature, post your question, and they will pull up all the information available on that particular question and make that available to you. Their information specialists will work with you on helping you to understand the question that you have. And then you can take that information back to your treating healthcare team or take a part of it back to your healthcare team and ask your question of them. Um, so that's really important. And for those of you who'd like to pursue further support from Cancer Care, um, please do, do not hesitate to call our oncology social work staff here at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673, or you may also visit our website and post your questions there or register for a program or an online support group at www.cancercare.org or telephone support group. So you can get those services either way, depending upon your comfort at using on those different technologies. Um, I, particularly as we conclude the program today, we do not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with GVHD, in coping with cancer, blood cancers, in coping with any cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a support community, which is not just cancer care, but so many other organizations out there to help you. And we want you to take advantage of them and um, to utilize their resources. Um, I also do want to just call out to the American Cancer Society. They do have a 24-hour call center and website that you can also access, because well, all the websites are 24 hours. But their call center is, um, their phone number is 1-800-227-2345, and there's always someone staffing that 
phone line 24 hours a day, um, 365 days a year, and also their website, www.cancer.org. So that's another resource as well. So, But there are so many others. And I do want to call out, too, that we are doing a program on current perspectives on cancer survivorship, which I think might be interesting to many of you on the call today. Um, it's on June 19th, and I invite you all to participate in that. You'll be getting, in, when you get your evaluation form, you will be getting, um, you'll be getting those, um, you actually will be getting um, all the resources that we've mentioned during the program and then some others as well in addition to the evaluation. So the evaluation is a bit of an extension of the program. We do appreciate your feedback. You'll give us suggestions of topics you'd like us to do in the future. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.